This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast, powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. And Mr. Kennedy, I uh, wanted to know about your weekend. I, I hear it was a bit of a hair-raising experience. It was a windy weekend in the greater Toronto area. I had a, a big tree branch fall on the roof of uh, my extension, so I had to amble up on a ladder and saw it apart and then throw it down, which Impressive. was like kind of fun uh, once I was up on the roof. But I felt like I was doing some real, like, domestic chores this weekend. Mm-hmm. Put some real elbow grease into it. Mm-hmm. I think I have to do the same. There was a lot of debris in my backyard. Some giant branches that my daughter started to pick up and wield as a weapon, <laughs> which, is not, which is not ideal. And I think there might be some branches that are, like, now near power lines. So if this is my final podcast ever, it means that <laughs> I tried why. to cut them down myself. And then yeah. I went full. Clark Griswold and uh, was badly injured. Yeah, I, I also watched on the weekend the the National Geographic documentary, The Rescue, the one about the kids in the mine, uh. which was really intense. It's weird because a story that most people know the result of. I didn't expect it to be so harrowing, but mm. just you've been warned if you have kids. Like the 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 degree of difficulty of that rescue, I did not expect it to be shown in such detail. It's mm. pretty wild, but also right. incredible. So worth a watch, but just. It's not for the faint of heart as well. Viewer discretion is advised. Viewer discretion advised, exactly. So we start off the podcast with some concerning news, I think, in the hockey world. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get this weird feeling creeping up my spine, like reminding me of March 2020 when you felt the the pandemic, sort of the walls closing in and creeping up on everybody. And we're seeing more and more players, not just in hockey, but the entire sports world, contracting the virus even with vaccines it's not like they're getting serious cases and uh, i think most of the time but they're still getting it with the omicron variant it's spreading really fast we saw i think the stat i saw this week uh, after the flames had multiple games postponed 17 percent of the player population has has gone landed in protocol this year i saw yesterday in the nfl i think it was 37 players on monday alone went into protocol so I kind of want to ask to start the show, do you think it's time to revert a little bit if you're in the NHL? Do you have to start exploring changes? We can go into some different ideas, but do you think there needs to be a clampdown? Do we need to see fans back out of arenas? Do we need to see the protocols get stricter? Mm-hmm. Anything in your mind right now, what do you think needs to happen? Well, when I think about the most plausible channel right now, I think it's between the NHL and the players themselves. You know, taking fans out of the buildings at this point, obviously, you know, health comes first, but I know that business kind of comes first when it comes to, uh, you know, the world in general. And, you know, the NHL already took a huge hit, uh, you know, the past couple of seasons, and they're going to be digging out of that financial hole for a a few years uh, as it is. Uh, And, you know, the players bear some of that, as well when it comes to the salary cap and, and revenue sharing and whatnot. So it, it's hard for me to pragmatically see fans being uh, stopped from coming in. I think if people are paying money for tickets, um, you know, you have to think about the different uh, areas where NHL franchises exist. You know, there, there are some states and provinces that are a little more loose than others when it comes to the vac- or to the, the pandemic. So I don't necessarily think that the will is there 
to close buildings anymore. But what I could see is the players in the NHL getting together and say, okay, how can we protect the players as best as possible? And that obviously means, you know, uh, as much of a clamp down on public appearances, interactions with others as possible. I don't think you need to tell the players to be in a bubble, but I think what you suggest is don't really go out much. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like be with your family, maybe have you know, a little bit of extended family, like keep a tight circle, you know, maybe order in, don't go to restaurants, obviously don't go to bars, that sort of thing. Keep it as tight as you can because we want to get through this as safely as possible. Mm -hmm. So to me, I, I, I don't think a mandate is necessarily going to work unless it's done with the Players Association, but I think it has to be kind of an informal thing with the players where they say, look, we all want to get through with this, if you guys can just kind of keep it tight at home as much as possible, we'll make sure that you're not, you know, the fans aren't trying to high five you on your way to the dressing room uh, and that sort of thing. Because uh, we need to just get through this as best as possible. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair point, um, sort of putting it to the players in that situation. Because I know if I'm thinking of conversations I had before the start of the season, I remember talking to Pierre-Luc Dubois and Mark Scheifele, and they were explaining, you know, last year was tough. We had the player lounge. It was hard to bond. So the implication was this year we will be able to. We, mm. This year we will be able to go out. So as far as I know, players have had that freedom to sort of do what they want to do on their own time. But now I, I think it's getting more dangerous, and I agree. I don't think it's realistic to assume the NHL will be willing to pull people out of buildings. They, they already announced the salary cap is finally supposed to go up. They had such catastrophic revenue losses during the first wave of the pandemic that it's hard to imagine them being willing to sort of revert to the situation of 2020. If we're talking from a pure disease standpoint and factoring out money, we know bubbles work. It's a proven thing. So if the NHL was really concerned and wanted to eliminate the problem at all, of course, you could do a bubble again. But I don't, I don't think that's realistic, sadly. Um, what I do wonder, though, is if there's a way to use the two-week break that's scheduled for the Olympics to the league's advantage. Because right now, if you could argue, and I know not everyone agreed with me, uh, I put this out on Twitter, not everyone, everyone agreed, maybe I, I can explain it better just speaking instead of tweeting it. But we know that there's a couple weeks already slotted out in the NHL schedule for the Olympics. It's already looking increasingly unlikely the players are going to go. If you don't go, then you can use that two-week to sort of rejig the schedule. You already are going to have that gap, but maybe you... You move the two-week break, you put it now. When things are really heating up, things are getting crazy, players are going to be going home to see their family, maybe you just pause the entire league for a couple of weeks and coming out of Christmas or whatever it is, holiday season, you make players isolate for a couple of weeks and then you come back and resume everything with stricter protocols and you know players' lounges instead of going out, all those kinds of things. So you come back fresh. After everyone walks away, it also takes away the disadvantages of certain teams that are getting their schedules really mucked up right now, and you kind of restart in mid-January. Or, I don't know, do you, do you, like, there are so many different degrees of doing this. If it gets really bad a month from now, if Omicron's getting horrible, do you pause the entire schedule until the Olympic break ends? Because we know there are a lot of concerts, things like that, that are scheduled in the NHL venues already during what was going to be the Olympic break. So rejigging the schedule could be difficult. So again, I'm spitballing, of course, and I know it's easy to just come up with every sort of alarmist idea and, and factor out the business side of it, and that's yeah. sort of the way my brain works. It's not realistic, but if we're sort of weighing, you know, making temporary changes that could hurt a little bit versus not doing anything and end up and maybe losing the whole season, then I think you have to consider making some drastic changes. That's what I'm kind of wondering about. 
The Calgary Flames had a few extra COVID cases this morning. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. I know, Stephen. That's why it's our lead topic. Come on. <laughs> what do you that. take me for, man? Hey, it's, it's new news. As okay. Of recently. Okay. Yeah. Sean Monaghan was one of them, right? Yeah. Luke yes. Keech. I already selected Sean Monaghan as the photo for this blog that goes with the podcast. I'm yeah, on yeah. top of it. Okay? But I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so... I just think we have to start thinking about solutions and sure. however things are right now, they're not working right now. I don't think, no matter what, I know vaccines have helped, you could sort of throw up your hands and say, we've done everything we can do. When there's 17% of the players that have had it or been in protocol this year, it's mm-hmm. clearly not quite working the way things are configured. So I do think some stricter measures have to happen. So on the lighter side, and yes, John Tortorella, I'm going to say the lighter side because hockey can be fun. We know uh, everyone was talking about the goal that happened last week, the Michigan team-up goal with Trevor Zegras flipping the puck over the net to Sonny Milano, who actually called for the Michigan mid-play, which is so cool. Unless you're John Tortorella. John Tortorella, who coached Sonny Milano, in, or I guess benched, he, he nailed... <laughs> More benched yeah, than coach. He benched Sonny Milano in, in Columbus. Uh, was not a fan of this play he, he, because of, he's working now as an analyst. And he... Explained that if you did that in back in the 90s and 2000s, you'd get your head taken off. I'm not sure it's so good for the game. Basically, he's speaking Don Cherry speak, right? Something you would have heard on Coach's Corner. Uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, whose game is he talking about? But I'll get your take first. Do you agree with anything that John Tortorella has said about this being bad for the game? A play like what we saw last week? No. I, the only thing I agree with is if, if you tried it back in the day, you would get your head taken off. I've heard that from veteran players as well. Um, so that is probably true. Having said that, it's so, I mean, it's so common now, and everybody loves seeing it so much, and everybody loves trying it in practice now that you know, times have changed. And, you know, I'm, you can have your opinion. And you know, I go back to, you know, I had a friend who, not in the hockey industry, but a hockey fan, and he was saying how he actually likes hearing, like, rumors that probably aren't true and, like, hot takes. And, I, and to me, I was like, really? Like, I just, that's, I hate that stuff. Like, I hate hot takes. But some people just sort of like the you know, the sort of Royal Tenenbaum-esque, like just sort of mixing it up, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I get that there's a place for that in TV, as long as it's not harmful in like a Mike Milbury way, as long as you're not being like hateful. Uh, and Tortorella, you know, like he's, it, it's, a, it's a hockey opinion. So I, I'm fine with that. My problem, and this is more of an ethical thing for me, is that when John Tortorella is coaching, he openly disdains the media, but as soon as he gets fired, he joins the media, taking away a job from someone who's not a millionaire, uh, who could use that profile to, you know, give themselves a, a leg up in the industry. And then, of course, as soon as somebody offers John Tortorella a job, he bails on the media job. Mm-hmm. So I am offended by John Tortorella's actions and have been for the past decade. Uh, because I don't feel that's a very, like, working-class thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Having said that, you know, obviously I know why TV producers would love him, because he's he's grumpy, but at the same time, you know he's like a good dude off the ice, and he loves dogs, and his players usually like him. Um, but that that's my that's my hot take. Okay, yeah, I appreciate the hot take, and I, I agree with you. And, and you know, obviously the caveat comes with it. We know that Tortorella is paid to be a provocateur, so he's going to, whatever the popular opinion is, he's going to deliberately say the opposite because it's going to stir the pot. But if we're sort of taking it at face value and, and expressing our opinion on it, obviously I disagree. Uh, the NHL 
historically just as allergic to celebrating itself and celebrating the fun, lighter, finesse side of the game. Uh, I don't see in what universe a play of that skill level would not be exciting or good for the game. And it's shared, it goes viral. People and others who aren't even big hockey fans might see it. It's the kind of play that could attract them yeah. to the sport, seeing the level of skill. The only time I get I get grumpy old man is the Michigan, I prefer the Michigan pass goal to the Michigan scoring goal because I do think the Michigan scoring goal is a little dangerous. I always worry about goalies. Maybe it's the dad in me, but I think right. I worry about goalies getting hit in the eye because the, the blade of the stick is so close to the head. Fair. But that aside, just I enjoy high skill, exciting plays. And, you know, if you connect some dots here, and I want to be clear, I'm not accusing John Tortorella of these things, but the type of opinion he's expressing, that's the root of the hockey culture that leads to things, if you connect the dots, like homophobia, racism. It's the idea that standing out is bad. Doing anything that makes you different is bad. So if if a coach is expressing on national TV that you're going to get beat up or it's bad for the game just flipping the puck over the net, what about doing something like being gay? or not doing something, but just being a gay member of a team. And that type of thing is seen as even more of an outsider. So if you have people expressing disdain for just exciting hockey plays, it's not hard to understand why people who are different, not Mm. traditional hockey players, are afraid to exist in that environment, right? So I just think it's an example of the type of hockey culture we need to get rid of, the idea that you can't stand out, you can't have different interests, you can't have finesse, you have to be... The same as everybody else. The conformity is a big problem in the game. And I think this type of opinion, it just perpetuates that. So Connor Bedard, 16 years old, joins Shane Wright on Team Canada at the World Juniors. And Bedard is joining very elite company as a 16-year-old. The only others to do it for Team Canada. Wayne Gretzky, 1978. Eric Lindros, 1990. Jason Spezza and Jay Bomeister in 2000, Sidney Crosby 2004, Connor McDavid 2014. So it's obviously very exciting. There are sort of have been mixed results in the past for players that young being on the team. So I'm curious, obviously, you're much more plugged into the prospect scene than I am. What do you think we should expect from Connor Bedard at the World Juniors? Well, you know, I look at Connor McDavid's 16-year-old tournament as a good kind of baseline. You know, he had four points in seven games, uh, you know, was playing a depth role. Brent Sutter was the coach, obviously uh, a veteran world junior coach at the time who had won a bunch of golds for Canada in the past. Um, you know, but that team ended up losing the bronze medal game to Russia. You know, Anthony Mantha and Jonathan Drouin were kind of the big guns. Um, you know, they had a great defense core. Uh, and it's funny, I remember, because I was covering that tournament in Sweden. Uh, that's when Matt Dumba told me that the guys were calling Aaron Ekblad Shrek because he was such a big guy. Um, but I digress. Uh, you know, McDavid, he, he was a little noticeable in the tournament, but it was the next year... Uh, when he was really kind of the marquee guy and the go-to guy on that Canada team. With Bedard, it'll be interesting to see how they deploy him because when I look at this lineup, you know, your obvious top two centers are Shane Wright and Mason McTavish. Does Connor Bedard play center or do you put him on a wing in a scoring role? And, you know, how high is his role? Because you have some pretty elite wingers on that squad too. And again, you have 19-year-olds. So... You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some some flashes of brilliance from Bedard because he is the type of player where sometimes he just decides, like, this shift, I'm scoring. 
and you're probably not going to stop me. He did it at the World Under 18s. It was kind of hilarious to watch how skilled he is. Um, and I think you probably will see him get some nice mismatches, particularly if he's playing on a third or fourth line where, you know, if he's playing against the sort of third best checkers on, you know, some of the teams that Canada is going to face in the round robin, I mean, he could wheel. So we might actually see more points from Bedard than McDavid had uh, his season, but I'm not, I'm just not sure what his overall impact would be uh, because there's so much depth and veteran presence on this squad. So I think I'm hoping for some fireworks, but I'm also grounded knowing that next year is the year that he'll probably have like 15 points in seven mm-hmm. games. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair assessment. And especially if you look at the build that Connor Bedard has, he's about 5'9", 180 pounds. And when you're that type of build, obviously in the modern game, you can still do a lot. But it, it usually means you're not going to be playing like a checking role, a heavy role, right? Yeah. So you have to be on a scoring line. Maybe Canada's too deep in the top six for it to really work for him and for him to get big, big minutes. I could see him being used as the equivalent of the backup running back who comes in when you're already leading big against a weak opponent and you're killing the clock and Mm. you're against a tired defense and you probably hit a couple home runs and (laughs) run for an 80-yard touchdown. I think Bedard, if if Canada's playing a weaker opponent and they're winning the game 6-1 and they want to rest their top players, their their top veterans, you bring in Bedard just to get some more experience and give him more minutes later in that game. But I I think it's a fair assessment. I do think we're going to see him pop a couple times. His speed is just too game-changing, right? Um, But it's funny, historically... Uh, if you look at the the 16-year-old who had the biggest impact, Eric Lindros had four goals. It makes sense because his body was probably more like a 19-year-old. But Wayne Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky, of course, being the exception, he's like, yeah, he had 17 points in eight games as a 16-year-old. Wow. Just classic Wayne Gretzky being a pure video game at every level he's ever played. Uh, but I think that's a bang-on assessment of Bedard. So there was an idea tabled this week. I don't know if we should even be giving it airtime, but it's interesting. Mm. So it was Mike Milbury who's not exactly the king of the measured uh, hockey take, or hockey trade for that matter. Um, But he tabled the idea that the Boston Bruins should sell Patrice Bergeron to a contender, trade him. He's a UFA in the final year of his deal. Uh, The Boston Bruins have a 625 points percentage. They're in a playoff spot. I don't really know where this is coming from. But it's it's still an interesting discussion topic to play out. Uh, So I guess just tell me if you think there's any scenario in which this makes sense. No, uh, there's. it doesn't make any sense at all. Patrice Bergeron has already won a Stanley Cup. I'm sure he wants to win another Stanley Cup, and he would want to do so in Boston. And as you mentioned, I mean, the Bruins, even if they finish fourth in that division, do you really want to play them in the playoffs? Do you really want to have to face Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak, and potentially Tukarask and Nett? Who knows? Um so, yeah, I, and, you know, Bergeron, he has the opportunity to play his entire career in Boston. That's a tremendous legacy. He's going to go down as one of the best Bruins of all time. I don't think he would ever want to wreck that opportunity because it, it doesn't happen that often anymore, especially for, you know, a, a Hall of Fame caliber player with a long career. So I don't think it's going to happen um, if you want, you know, if you want me to look at scenarios of who could use him, I don't know if you want to respond to the first part first, or if you want me to go into that now. Yeah, I guess I'll we'll play a little tennis here and bat it back and forth. But I agree, you know, he is going to be Bruins royalty. He already is. He is third all time on the franchise games played list behind just Ray Bork and John Busick. He's fourth in points. We obviously know he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. 
if you're playing out the scenario, you know, he is a pending UFA. He's going to be 37 next season. I think the only way a Bergeron trade could make sense is if he tells Don Sweeney, I am retiring after this year. So if you want me to do the franchise a solid and get you something, you can trade me. That said, even under under that scenario, Bergeron, his his modified no trade clause is, so, is very limiting. It's just a three-team trade list. Not a no trade list. It's a trade list. Mm. So... You can trade me to one of these three teams. And we don't wow. know what those teams are. We don't know if those are teams that are in contention, if you'd be willing to adjust it. So it's very unlikely, but I think that's the only scenario that would make sense. If he just wants to go out by doing the franchise a solid, knowing he's going to be back. He, sorry, knowing he's, knowing he's going to be gone. Right. But also, the only way that scenario makes sense is if Boston's out of contention, which they obviously are not right yeah. now. So, yeah. But yes, I'd like to hear hypothetically where he would fit. Okay, so couple of options here you know the most obvious one is the new york rangers but the caveat with that one is yes they have the cap space but do you really really want to mess with the chemistry you have in your top two lines because strom and panarin have such great chemistry and then you have zabanajad who's so good on that top line and then you say to yourself okay does a patrice bergeron alexi lafreniere julian gauthier line work because you would have one guy who's amazing at defense and two players that are, you know, Lafreniere is still young, Goche, you know, I mean, he's in his mid-20s now, but they're not defensive players. Um, so do you get the best value out of Bergeron playing him with two younger guys that don't have the same uh, sort of uh, portfolio? I, I'm not sure. Um, but, I mean, you know, if you can get Patrice Bergeron, I f- I feel you probably make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, same kind of goes with Edmonton, where you know you could probably move Ryan Nugent Hopkins back to the wing, where he played some uh, last year, and then you you, know, you have obviously Bergeron on the second line. But the team that I think would actually work in this fantasy land where Patrice Bergeron is traded is Nashville, because. They're not deep down the middle, but they are a really solid team, and they're playing very well right now. So if you had Patrice Bergeron in your top six, you could obviously move Colton Sissons down on the depth chart. Um, And, you know, you you come up with a trade where maybe it's like Matthew Benning and Luke Cunning. You know, Matthew Benning played his college hockey at Northeastern in Boston. Um, You know, it makes the money work a bit, although Nashville's in a pretty decent spot uh, cap-wise. But, you know, that's a scenario where... If Patrice Bergeron wanted to be traded and he was willing to go to Nashville on this three-team trade list, that would make sense. To yes, me. and it, it's it's telling how many qualifiers there are there. It's like so if many all these things happen, this exact sequence. I do think it would make sense if you deployed Bergeron. So the Rangers example, I think, is a good one. If you used them the way the Habs used Philip Deneau, where they roll three right. lines, and then that the Deneau line's job was just to erase other stars. Yeah. So you could put, you know, Patrice Bergeron with Barkley Goudreau on, on a line, and all they do is just erase every other team's yeah. best forward. I think that would work. That said, it's not happening unless the Bruins go on just a, a sudden skid. Because I do think, we said before, we think they're nearing the end of their contention window. Maybe this is it, because Bergeron could retire after the season. Uh-huh. But that's all the more reason to give it one last shot. Because we know the Bruins, their, their experience, their talent, they're only a couple years removed from making it to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. Mm-hmm. They have lost some players from that team, of course, but they're still pretty potent. And again, like if the Bruins finish 8th and get the Leafs in Round 1, who are you picking to win that series? <laughs> Come on, right? Uh, on on the darker side of things, so there are a couple really scary incidents. They're hard to watch, uh, and, and as a concussion survivor myself, they were pretty scary to see. Jujar Kyra, 
on the Blackhawks t- took a devastating hit from Jacob Truba. We had Jacob McDonald take a massive hit from Ryan Lomberg as well. Colorado got hit by Lomberg of the Panthers. Uh, and in both cases, the hits, they were really scary to see. They resulted in pretty significant brain trauma, players being stretched or taken to the hospital, but they were clean. Mm. I know a lot of people don't want to say that. They didn't agree on Twitter, but there's a re- as I, my response is always, let me know when the person gets suspended. They don't because the hits were forceful blows delivered to the chest. Mm-hmm. We can get more into the, the nitty-gritty of, of why, of what constitutes legal. Um, but before we do, I want to give you the floor first. And do you think that these incidents just given the level of violence to those hits and the fact they were clean, is that problematic? Does it mean that we have to sort of consider making some changes to the rule book? Well, I mean, I'm open to hearing what those changes might be, but I'm, I'm kind of worried that you would legislate too much into the game. And, you know, there's always sort of a butterfly effect when you do so. And, you know, part of the reason that we're seeing these enormous clean hits is because the game is so fast these days. The athletes, you know, everybody can skate. And then you have these big, strong players that are very good at laying the body. uh, And, you know, they have the hockey sense. They know their angles. Um, I would also say that, you know, we've caught up so much since, you know, the 80s and 90s when it comes to head trauma that... You know, guys are getting stretchered off now that they probably wouldn't have gotten stretchered off 20 years ago. People would have just said like, oh, you had your bell rung. You'll be fine. You know, have a coffee or something dumb like that. Yeah, Uh, have a coffee. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas now it's like, okay, well, let's make sure that this person is stabilized. Let's make sure that, you know, they get checked out and maybe get an MRI at the local hospital. We're so much more in tune to what these players need and, and so much more cautious that it looks... It looks bad, and you know, as as I'm sure you can attest, uh, you know, head trauma is bad, and we know that now. Um, my my question is, like, what do you do um, to make sure that the game doesn't get bogged down? Like, you don't want to make the you don't want to make the game slower. Um, and I'm sure that uh, you know, like with football, you know, I know the NFL has had a lot of rule changes over the past sort of five years uh a lot to do with protecting the quarterback and things Mm -hmm. like that um but it it, there's always that push and pull where you don't want to muck up the game too much but of course you want to be safe so what are those steps you can take to deal with as you mentioned clean hits yeah it's a it's a tough situation to to distort through um and the angle i'm coming from here i don't i hope i don't sound condescending to to hockey fans and readers, but I'm trying to explain it as like someone who I'm, I'm almost like a, a parent in this scenario when I'm debating this with people on Twitter. Like it's it's my it's my job to know the stuff. It's literally what I do all day. Mm-hmm. So trust me when I say that your issue you're having, people are angry at the league. They're angry angry at the Department of Player Safety. They're angry at, at the officials, but they're not. What you're angry at is the rule book. You're I, I don't think people understand their issues with the rule book because whether it's the officials, the the DOPS. They're confined to what's in the rule book too. That's the only thing they can punish. And when a hit as devastating as you know, Truban Kyra happens, if it's legal in the rule book, what can you do? It doesn't matter how violent it was; it's legal. So if you want to change it, you have to change the rule book. And I think there are a few things that get misunderstood. People say, "Look, look, he hit the head. He hit the head." The rule book says it does not say the first point of contact. It says the principal point of contact, mm. aka the part of the body that absorbed absorbed the most 
of the impact or the bar, the largest part of the impact, right? So people play the freeze frame game I call on Twitter, tick, 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 trying to screenshot the exact thing that confirms their argument, which is just a load of BS. It makes no sense. Anybody can do it in a way that favors their argument. And it's always a race to see which body part got hit first. That doesn't matter. That's not what the rule says. It's not first point, it's principal point. So that's one thing I think that people need to understand. Also, as a result of what's in the rulebook now, incidental head contact is allowed, a really forceful blow in the chest that makes the head snap back or clips the head. We might not like it, but that's the rule right now. And I always go back to 2010 when Matt Cook hit uh, Mark Savard and essentially ended his career. It was a devastating hit. People were really up in arms. The rulebook didn't have anything specifically prohibiting that type of hit at the time. And what happened? It was amended. Mm. Rule 48.1. And now the type of hit that Cook threw would be suspended instantly today. So if you want to make that change, you have to go into the rule book and, for example, to follow what Ken Dryden has been suggesting for years, make every version of head contact, including incidental, illegal. Mm. There would be some, some drawbacks to it. Like you said, it would make players more cautious. But at the same time, uh, and I know I was talking to the NHL director of officiating, Stephen Walcom. We were talking about cross-checking, but he was saying that you do over time, it sort of does get baked into players' minds, and they start to conform and behave differently, and it get kind of just it sort of gestates in their brain. So mm. I do think you would see gradually players learning to hit differently, mm. right? It's the same with goes the whole idea of the chunky stop sign on jerseys when you're playing house league. It's it's just sort of bake it into your brain to not hit players from behind so and i do think you don't see as many of those so i, I do think i'm personally more optimistic than most that if you made that change you would long term see fewer concussions and yes you would get a lot more penalties in the short term it would be some some serious growing pains but i think it would keep players safe at the same time as long as it's a contact sport played at the speed that it is like you said it's unavoidable there will be concussions because collisions on the ice are like car crashes these days yeah. that's how fast the players are skating so let's do some listener mailbag questions we have a few from some of our our, our most frequent visitors to the mailbag first one is from beach life for me beach life for me wants to know will arizona pull up the stakes and bolt from phoenix uh of course gary batman is going to vehemently deny the idea of relocation in terms of having various off-the-record conversations, or not off-the-record, I should say, anonymous conversations, um, I still think the temperature suggests that Arizona's out of here. It looks like, are you winking at me? It looked like oh, Ryan, no, sorry. Ryan was winking at me. I was like, wait, what does he know? What yeah. does he know? It's like the Seinfeld episode with George and the, the lemon. Yeah. Uh, I'm So I'm still skeptical of the idea that this team is going to be staying. Uh, obviously, we know Glendale was ready to lock them out of Gila River Arena, 1.3 million in unpaid state and city taxes. I guess they've been paid, so the debts have been settled. Um, what I have to ask, and I've said this many times, just why? Why do we have to keep letting this franchise limp along? They average 12,000 fans a game. I don't understand the attachment that Gary Bettman has to Arizona in particular. It's okay. We saw the Thrashers relocate before. It's not a loss. Like it's The, the relocation of the Thrashers is, is a success story in terms of how, how, flourish, how much the Jets flourish as a franchise. So why not go deeper down the road exploring with Tillman Fertitta the idea of a Houston relocation? I don't think Quebec City makes sense, even though we know they're gonna, that there's going to be some more discussions there. Mm. That would be more from an expansion standpoint. But mm. if we're looking at the, the geographical, geographical configuration of the divisions, Houston's or Arizona's already moved to the central, right? So they're already primed to be taken over by a central-time city. Mm. Houston makes a lot of sense. So will Arizona pull up the stakes and bolt from Phoenix? I'm going to say yes, even though the NHL is denying it. That's my prediction. 
All right, so I'm going to put on my evil businessman hat here. I'm saying they're not leaving. Uh, I think there's a master plan. And here's what I will put to you. Alex Morello, the owner of the Coyotes, uh, he's different from a lot of the owners they've had in the past in that, in that he actually has money. He has a lot of it. <laughs> he is a billionaire. Um, so, you know, when it came to the, the, the taxes and everything uh, with, with Glendale, it's not that they didn't have the money. It's just that they didn't give them the money. And, uh, again, this is my businessman succession, uh, you know, sort of uh, vibe on this. Uh, it, it's not that they don't have money. It's like there's, there's, you know, there's some brinksmanship going on here. Obviously, the relationship between Glendale and the Coyotes has been fraught for more than a decade now. Um, I, I think they're going to stay in state where they play is sort of the multi-million dollar or even billion dollar question. But, you know, I just I get this sense that maybe these guys don't, you know, haven't been in the, the hockey arena very much, but they've been in the business arena for decades. Mm-hmm. So doing deals right now, it's like maybe they don't, you know, do it the way that we're used to uh, in hockey circles. But, like, these guys have dealt with tons of, like, mergers and acquisitions before. They've dealt with, you know, all sorts of regulations. They have plans. Whether it ultimately works out or not, who knows. But there's plenty of options. Uh, There's plenty of land out there in the desert. I still think they're going to stay, even if they're doing it in a way that may be unpopular. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's not that they're broke. And we know they want to go to Tempe, but it means yeah. constructing a new arena from scratch. That's my understanding. So it's still a matter of finding somewhere to play. It'll take a couple of years. Year. Yeah. yeah. So you have to try and sign a new lease with Glendale. And but even though that relationship is so fractured, hard to say. Yeah. Uh, next question is from Scott Baker. What are your best and worst interview moments from your THN career? That's a fun one. There are a few that stand out. Um, one of my favorites was... I was doing so. Jonathan Taves was our guest editor for the Hockey News a few years back, and I was we were doing an interview for the, for the for the, the magazine, the story. And I was in Chicago, and I was talking to him about his dad, who was an electrician, and his dad would never let him touch anything because he didn't want his son to get electrocuted and ruin his hockey career. And Taves interrupted me. He was like, "Wait, wait, wait! How did you know that about my dad?" And I was like, "Well, I, I did my homework. I I learned about him." And he was like, "That's awesome! That's awesome!" And it was a good lesson. Like it was like, oh, if you do your homework and and learn a lot about a subject, an interview subject beforehand, it's crazy the degree to which the wall comes down of the mm. player. And the moment I brought that up, Taves' dad, I could see him visibly like his body language softened, and the the rest of the interview was so good because it was almost like he was impressed that I did my homework. So it always stuck in my mind. Another good one would be just seeing the phone ringing and it was like, you know, I don't know if it was called this play, but it was like Iserman S. My favorite player of all time, the first time he ever called me, it was, you know, that I'm not really one to, you know, you, as you know, in, when you work in the industry for a while, you don't really, you, you lose that sort of fan side of you because sure. you have to be more impartial. But when it's your favorite player of all time, there was a moment of like, cool, like the, like the little voice in my head was like, it's cool, it's Steve Iserman, he's calling me. Right. So that was a cool feeling for sure. Um and just any time in interviews that people reveal, hey, I know I read, I read your stuff all the time, or I have a subscription. It's always fun to hear that from, mm. from, from players or former players, whatever it is. Um, on the worst, wait, okay, I'll, I'll do my worst after. You do your best, and then I'll do my worst. Okay, yeah, so I have a couple of different ways. There's like the really funny ones, like 
uh, Kirill Kabanov at the draft combine when he was explaining why he got kicked off Russia's World Under 18 team uh, because he took like a peanut off the coach's desk and he was it wasn't even his desk it was just a table in some room and I only took one um, Kabanov was always awesome uh, early Nail Yakupov uh, he was always fun to talk to. He always gave us great interviews. More recently, I think this was maybe a couple, maybe like two years ago now, I did an article for the magazine where I was just getting like the best advice from different people oh, in the yeah. hockey world. That was good. So Scotty Bowman was one of them because I figured like who knows more than Scotty Bowman, right? Uh, so Scotty Bowman was excellent, taking it all the way back to his days with the Montreal Canadiens when he was first coming up. And then uh, Lou Lamorello was part of that as well. I got great stuff from Lou Lamorello, uh, which ironically tied in Scotty Bowman because he, he looked at what Scotty Bowman had been doing uh, when he was coming up and you know incorporated that into uh, sort of how he developed his sort of hockey culture, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, and then, you know, anytime you get to spend a lot of time with a player, you know, I remember we used to do a special magazine called Fully Loaded, and we went to Matt Duchesne's parents' house uh, in uh, sort of cottage country in Ontario. And, you know, we did like a photo shoot where he was like wearing, you know, at the time a Colorado Avalanche jersey. And, you know, he was just sort of showing us around like he had like a little like workout area in the basement. And, you know, he's playing guitar and he had a drum set and just being able to hang out with him for that time uh, was really kind of fun because you saw his motivations, you saw where he was coming from. So though, I, I would say those were, uh, were some of the best uh, that come to mind for me. Those are good ones for sure. Um, on the worst, there are a few for different reasons. Like there's one, you know, it was when Ron Wilson was coach of the Leafs, there was a post-game presser. I was pretty new. I asked the first question and it made him so mad that he just walked out and like, so <laughs> So I ruined the press conference for everybody. And I was like, oh, sorry, everybody. Uh, th there was also one, it was at the NHL awards when Henrik Lundqvist won the Vezina. And that was the first time I covered the awards and I was trying to find an angle. I, I feel like I've told the story to someone, but like I, I tried to push an angle like, European players all won all the awards and I asked him a question and he just looked in my eyes and was like I was like does this matter and he was like no <laughs> and he was like disgusted he was like well, you idiot and I and I, I was he was right like why did I ask that question it was such a dumb angle it made no sense I was forcing it so it was a good lesson don't force a story angle that isn't there um, there's one too where Mike Camilleri scared the bejesus out of me because I asked him it was on, it was a TV interview and I was like, did you? He just signed with the Devils and I was like, oh, did you get to the Jersey Shore? And he was like, why? Why Jersey Shore? Because I'm Italian. Are you stereotyping me? Are you stereotyping me? And I was like, no, no, no. And he was just he was pulling my leg, but it scared me. And the last one. So often, for advice or background on stories, someone I call fairly often is Craig Button because he's you know, he's been around the industry for a long time. He's a friend of the show. But one thing that's funny that always happens is if I if I'm calling him about something, a certain idea. He'll never just accept the fact that, hey, because I'm pitching this story, it's a thing. He'll often just shut it down be like, no, this is not true. Why does it have to be true? It's this. And he'll rhyme off all these things. And I'll be like, damn it, Craig, you, you blew up the story. You're like, I guess you're right. But this ruined the story. So good on him, though. He's not just willing to accept whatever the questions are. He'll always challenge. But it always sort of blows my mind and makes me go back to the drawing board, which is a, a fun challenge. What so, did you ask Ron Wilson that made him so mad? I don't know. I forget. I, maybe it was like, why didn't you play so and so in this period? I, I, I it was, it was like eleven years ago, so I don't know. But it's like the very first question, and he's just like, see it. Yeah, he, like, he said, he said, like he answered it. He said, he answered it in like one or two syllables, and then just turned and left. And I was like, 
Uh, whoops, sorry. Yeah. What about you in the worst category? All right, so worst category. The first one that comes to mind is uh, Brad May when he played for the Leafs, which is obviously the end of his career. Uh, I wanted to talk to him after the game about just sort of like changing momentum and like, you know, being that guy that can help out physically. And he was just like, I don't really do that. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. Is he admitting he was useless or something? Yeah, great guy for <laughs> the room. I don't know. Like, I, yeah, it's like. I don't do my job. <laughs> it's like you're not there to score. Um, so, yeah, it's just sort of like, can't you just like, you know, you, you can say something, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Like, how hard would that be? Um, so that was sort of like a weird one. And oh, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody on the Penguins who I wanted to ask about Chris Letang coming back. And it was another, it was an, another like sort of rugged defenseman. And it's like, oh, you guys excited? To, you know, like Chris Letang's coming back. He's like, I don't want to talk about that. It's like, wow. Jeez, what was you Letang? You talk about the teammate? And it wasn't like Letang was replacing him in the line. I was going to say, that was my thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like an odd one. And then the one that was sort of like funny was that for like several years, I had like a pitched battle with Russian world junior coach Valerie Bragan. Oh, yes. Who, that, was, that's, that was so weird. Definitely understands English, but pretends that he doesn't. And so, and, and then I was at the point where it's like, well, I'm asking him questions anyway because that's my job here uh but then over time like i think we kind of had an understanding and he would actually like you know give me answers and i think the last time i talked to him was about like vasily Podkolzin, uh and he was uh he was a huge fan of Podkolzin, so i got great stuff from him off of that um so all's well that ended well but for a couple of years though at the world juniors it was like really like testy mm -hmm. uh, which was like amusing in retrospect mm -hmm. I always like telling these kinds of stories, so I have one more quick one where Ryan Kessler really messed with my head as well, where he was on the cover of, like, I think it was NHL 2K or something, and I was talking to him about it, and I was like, you know, with your with the rival being the EA Sports, and he was like, what's that? I was like, you know, you know the EA Sports game. He was like, I don't know what that is. I'm like, you know, NHL, NHL 94. He's like, what's that? I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> NHL, and he, he interrupted me. He was like, dude, I'm just messing with you. Nice. But I was, like, spazzing out, and he really got me. Yeah. NHL 2K11. 2K11, that was the one. Okay, so that was, I guess, 10 years ago. Okay, last question is from Ralph Wiggum. Favorite song when you were 10 years old? Hey, no judgment here. I was 10 years old. Mm. I was really big into Ace of Base. In, uh. I was 10 years old in 1993. Uh, and when I just turned 10, I think, like, in the winter of 94, the sign by Ace of Base was a hot track. So that was nice. probably my favorite song when I was 10. Nice. I don't remember myself at 10, but I think... My favorite song was probably Pop Goes the World by Men Without Hats. That was a big cassette tape for right. me. So I think that's probably when I was around 10. Before you moved on to... Exactly. I evolved into my ultimate form. All right. Yes. Cool. Uh, we're going to end it with the rapid fire game. Ryan, you are the host. You have a great opportunity to get revenge after I just made fun of your music. Perfect. I'm going to the phone here to make sure I remember them all. Okay, so th there's a bit of a mini theme to this one, which is the worst, or as Jean Ralphie would say, the worst. The worst. <laughs> Seriously, the worst. Okay, we've often talked about uh, road food uh, on the podcast and how much we love food in other cities. What's the worst road meal you've ever had? Ooh, okay, so I'm, I got I to gotta fire a shot across across the bow in NHL City. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I... I'm not going to say worse per se, but can I say overrated? Sure. Okay. Permanti Brothers okay. in Pittsburgh. Permanti okay. or Pimanti? I think it's Permanti. Yeah. For all the hype to those stack sandwiches they get, I was like, yeah, it's 
club sandwich with some fries that don't really taste like anything. Uh, just given the level of excitement that gotcha. it's like, you got to try the Primanti Brothers. It's the greatest thing you'll ever try. And I ate it and I was like, eh, yeah, uh, yeah. I will say I like the Grove City Primanti Brothers, which is kind of the outlet mall one. Yes, I like that one more than the one that I went to downtown, but fair play. My worst one, uh, this was when the draft was in New Jersey. Uh, just coming out of the lockout, so it's a one-day affair. Um, but I was there with Ted Cooper, who was our video editor at the time. The first day we went to Dinosaur Barbecue, which is awesome, mm-hmm. and I love Dinosaur Barbecue. Uh, but the second day, because it was the actual draft day, there was a bunch of fans around. Dinosaur Barbecue was packed. We didn't have time to wait because we had to go work. So we went around the corner to some sports bar that I don't even remember the name. It might not have even really had a name. But no matter what kind of sandwich you ordered, it all came on a hot dog bun. So it's like I had like a chicken parm and like, you know, Ted ordered something completely different like a Philly cheesesteak, but they both came on hot dog buns. And my fries were mismatched. Weird. Some were crinkle cut. Some were like shoestring. So it was almost like they just took like whatever bags of frozen fries they had and tossed them all in at once and and served them. (laughs) That's awesome. So that was my worst one ever. Okay. Uh, Second, who wins in a non-NHL Olympics this year? Hmm. I'm going to say Olympic athletes from Russia, whatever they're calling themselves now, because Mm. they can draw from the KHL. Mm. And uh, every team can. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yes, it's not but, a Russian only thing. No, but obviously they're going to get a stronger contingent. It's the same reason why they won in 2018. It's a mm-hmm. boring answer, but I think, you know, I'm I'm honoring the game by giving my most accurate answer. Nice, nice. Okay, yeah, Russia obviously a favorite. I'm also going to say Finland because they tend to do very well in international competitions even when they don't have uh, their NHL talent or a lot of NHL talent. Uh, shout out to Kevin Lankinen and his uh, international play, although he wouldn't be there. But they could have Emil Larmy in net. He's playing very well over in Finland. They could have Toby Niemela on defense, the Maple Leafs prospect. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go Finland because they always know how to win these tournaments. Okay, next one. I know you haven't seen the show yet, but I've been watching Kyle Mooney's Saturday Morning All-Star Hits on Netflix, which is fantastic if you are around my age. So my question is, uh, blow my mind with a Saturday morning cartoon that uh, you used to watch. Dig into the crates for me. Like one that's that's not an obvious one. Not an obvious one. Okay, I think you actually referenced this. So, I'm, but it, this is my answer. You you referenced it the other day, and it might even be referenced by Kyle Mooney. But the most obscure pull for me was Denver: The Last Dinosaur. Nice. I think it had a lot of the same voices that did voices for Ninja Turtles as well. Mm, possibly. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So nice. I'm gonna say Denver was my. Like that, when I was really getting to the deep part of my bench and they were showing a lot of reruns of Ninja Turtles or G.I. Joe, whatever I was watching. You go to Denver. Yeah. Also, shout out, uh, I, I used to also watch Gem, Truly Outrageous. The rock and roll band. There was the re- the, right. the rival band, The Misfits. Yes. Yeah. That was Which I'm, I don't know how the real Misfits were okay with that, but I guess they were busy doing other things at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, Denver. Yeah, there's a, on Smash, they, they have Randy, who's, Denver, and it's amazing. Um, I'm going to go with Camp Candy, the John Candy cartoon where he voiced a camp counselor. I don't remember anything else about it, oh, yeah. but I remember Camp Candy existed, and it was pretty good. That was a weird everybody thing. loves John Candy. And, like, comedians had their own, car- like, like yes. Bobby's World, of course, but also there was a Rosie O'Donnell one called, like, Rosie and Friends or something. Uh, maybe. Lo- uh, Louis Anderson had uh, Life with Louis. Yes, for sure. It was amazing. For sure. Uh, well, all speak- right. Speaking of Gem, we're talking, like, J-E-M? Yeah. Like a- yeah. Did you hear about that movie a couple years ago? Yes. Yeah. And I never saw it, but I heard about it. Like it yeah. bombed like incredibly. Did not do well. 
Yeah, it went against the original spirit, I gather. Okay. Um, worst Weezer song ever. Um, um, yeah, okay, no, there was one. Oh, the, it was called On Drugs. Like, when you're something, na, 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 and you're on drugs. And Ooh. that, I remember saying that song, it sounded like the, the kid diarrhea song. Like, when you're sliding into <laughs> right. first, and you, and I, I remember when that song came out, I was like, Weezer just did the diarrhea song, but they changed it to on, I think it's called On Drugs. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I'm going with Beverly Hills, because A, it sounds like they're trying to be the Steve Miller band, and B, mm, yeah. uh, they were already like millionaires when that song came out. They could live in Beverly Hills, and they would be readily accepted. I'm sure people in Beverly Hills probably actually still like Weezer. Mm -hmm. So complete uh, hypocrisy and doesn't make any sense. So that's my vote. Final question. This is completely out of left field. I don't even know how I came up with this. But which classic movie monster do you think would be the best at playing hockey? Uh, I'm going to say maybe the Invisible Man because you just, you're just just going to see the puck's just going to be like, cause, yeah, because the puck, you'd think the puck was going one way, but you don't know if it's his stick or whether mm. it's his body. So you could have no real sense of what he's doing with the puck. But the stick's not invisible. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. That's true. But then he could drop his stick. <laughs> when he plays defense, he'd be way more dangerous with no stick. Right. Because he could just blow people he up with hits. He could clutch and grab like no one's business. And he'd never get suspended because there'd be no evidence to show what what, what part of his body or whether he, he, used, he threw an elbow or anything. Mm. So I, I think I'm going to say Invisible Man. That's a pretty good answer. Um, part of me thinks Dracula, but then like opponents could just kind of like wear garlic and that would, you know, render him... And he'd be uh, terrible in matinees. hey Exactly. Hey. Uh, yeah, no day games, so he'd never be on NBC. Um, well, they don't have games in it anymore. Uh, I'm going to go the Wolfman, power forward. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because Frankenstein, no mobility whatsoever. Frankenstein would have been great in, like, the early 90s. Yeah. Stay-at-home defense. A real Chris Terrian type. Totally. Uh, but I'm going Wolfman, power forward, and obviously has, you know, like a lot of uh, grit and uh, aggression to his game. That's the worst rapid fire. Thank you for playing. I like about it. Rhino from Spider-Man. Like literally, like he get a lot of penalties because he's he just not a classic, not movie a classic monster. movie villain. You, Mummy would be interesting too because there'd be like there'd be complaints to K Whitmore that he has he's wearing too much padding. True, he has to get the his wraps yeah. measured. Yeah. Big minute muncher, but really slow. Yeah. Okay, so okay, so if we did then the TV stuff, then we could throw in Rhino. Yeah. Because like he literally would just he'd get a lot of penalties, he'd be stabbing everybody in the eyes. But True. then also like in the most recent movie he was in, Amazing Spider Man Two, he has like like rocket launchers and stuff. So he, like, does. he, he would just blow up everybody. But that he, might not be up to count. But see, this is the age gap. We're not talking <laughs> about not any monster in a movie. We're talking about the Universal Studios classic yeah. movie monsters, which is like Dracula, yeah, I'm not 40 werewolf. Years old, yeah, sorry. exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. We're dating ourselves here. Uh, but that was a good rapid fire. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for watching and listening, everybody. That is the end of this podcast.